We're talking about conflict and we're talking about marriage myths. And one of the myths is that conflict is bad, which is interesting when you think of vows that you say at a wedding. And I've done so many of these weddings where you, you, you hear again, for better, for worse. You know, this idea for richer, for poorer in good times and in what? Bad. How many? I, I can tell you, I seldom have I looked at couples where I think the worse, poorer, or bad times is even thought of when they're standing up in front of each other. You know what I mean? It's just amazing because you don't think about that, obviously, on that day. In fact, I think it's interesting. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, I think he's on to something when he writes. He says, years ago, I attended a wedding in which a couple wrote their own vows. And they said something like this. I love you and I want to be with you. And he said, the moment I heard it, I realized what historic Christian marriage vows had in common, regardless of their theological or denominational differences. The people at that moment that I was listening to were expressing their current love for each other. And and that's fine and it was moving. But he goes on, he says, but that is not what the marriage vows are. That is not how a covenant works. Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. I think Keller is is spot on. Wedding vows are not primarily a celebration of how you're feeling at the moment. Let's face it, everyone is feeling really good, hopefully, at the moment, right, of the wedding. But he goes on and makes this point. In a wedding, you stand before God, your family, your friends, the institutions of this world, and you promise, you make a vow to be, not just present now, but forever, loving, faithful, and true to the other person, even in times of conflict. Because I think God is well aware of the fact that some face these intense storms, and you'll face them within and you'll face them without your relationship. Now, I have to share with you, whenever I speak on marriage, and especially in speaking this, uh, there are people who are experienced the pain of divorce, and, and, and they've gone through and they've had to work through their process, or, or you're in a place where you're really in a hopeless place. And, and, and my hope in these marriage series is to really speak to people who are in that place and, and to encourage you to continue to see what God can do in your relationship, to call on this God of hope. And so when you think of vows and the reasons those are put, they're put there because God knows people are fickle and they're there to keep people on course because he knows that the importance of time and commitment have a way of shaping us as individuals and in relationship. Linda Waite and a team of hers in a group called the American Values Institute, they did uh, uh, some research on longitudinal studies, and it's called Findings from a Study of Unhappy Marriages. It's done back in 2002. Through a series of longitudinal studies, they found that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if people stay married and don't get divorced. Now, that's not always the case, two-thirds, right? That's a pretty good majority. And what studies have also found is that this conflict is not necessarily always bad. So you experience this for a period of time, but you also find in research has found that conflict is not necessarily always bad. That's a myth. In fact, there's much good that results from conflict. It's almost the biblical principle that all things work together for good. 
for those who actually love and commit themselves to God in that sense that he takes the things going on in your relationship, even the conflict, and he can use it to, instead of be destructive, can use it to be fruitful. And you may not have thought about that. Your view of conflict and how you approach it is important. Conflict, if you want to look at it this way, is just energy that comes in that you can use in a positive way. And so the myth that conflict is bad is really, if you look at the other side, the reality is that with God's help, conflict can be managed positively and be fruitful. It can be used as energy to help you understand yourself better. It can uncover lies that you have believed maybe throughout your life. It can help you understand some deep needs that you have that you maybe weren't in touch with. It can actually move in such a way that it gives you a sense of deep humility and can break to the point of dependence upon God in a way that you've never experienced before. It can actually develop within you an understanding of your, your spouse and, and it can help you have an understanding of your partner and, and what things are causing them to react the way that they do so that you, over time, begin to have some compassion and begin to move together around those things. Conflict can actually help you deal with change because in conflict, you're forced to be more flexible and you're forced to grow an understanding. And it can be used not just in your marriage, but I want to tell you, it's used in all social relationships. It's used in the work world. It's used in all those kind of places. So conflict, the myth of it being bad, is not always the case. Actually can be fruitful instead of destructive. And so this morning, what I want to do is share with you some simple truths, and I'm going to share a few that I'll go into more detail, and then a couple that we're just going to race through. But these kind of things that can help you understand the conflict you face in your marriage. James, who is the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter. It's in the, near the end in the New Testament, but this letter that he writes is really one of the first letters that was written after Jesus, his brother, had died on the cross. And he's writing to a group of, uh, of uh, followers of his brother Jesus, and he's writing to them in a time of conflict, and he's trying to share with them how important it is that they understand what's going on if they're going to actually manage the conflict in a way that is fruitful. So if you look at James chapter 4, these first few verses, he at this point is, he is going through, has focused talked about the tongue and he speaks about the kind of wisdom. He now comes to this point where he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, you desire, but do not have. So you kill. You know what you want? So you, you actually become destructive. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is making a simple point. How you negotiate conflict is essential to whether it will be good or bad. The authors Notarius and Markman, in a book they wrote called We Can Work It Out, How to Solve Conflict, Save Your Marriage, and Strengthen Your Love for Each Other, they make this point. It's not the difference between the partners that cause problems but how the differences are handled when they arise. That's what I want us to talk about. Some simple truths that will help us in that. Let's pray. Father, I invite your Holy Spirit right now to speak in and through me. I pray that you would cause us to have humble and, and hearts that are willing to just listen and hear you. I pray um, that you would be just liberally present in this place. In Christ's name, amen. 
Well, simple truth number one is a pretty, I mean, you're going to kind of go, well, this is obvious, but conflict comes from competing desires. When two opposing desires come together, they clash, and there's always in that a potential for battle. I need to talk, or I need to read the paper, or I'm wired to stay up late. Well, I'm really a morning person, so I'd like it if you'd come to bed, you know, that kind of stuff. I need some time with my friends. I need you to stay home. I'd like to be intimate. I'd like just to be cuddled. You know, it could go on and on. Desire after another desire. You're too lenient with the kids. You spend too much money. You pay too, play too much golf. Um, I said that, again, something I got last week, and I had a number of guys come and say, you know, it's just unfair. Don't bring up the golf thing. So I brought it up again. Golf, golf, golf. Anyway, um, you have a desire and I have mine. And they compete. Well, I think it's interesting that no matter what partner you choose, this is an important thing, kind of a myth in itself, in a sense that you kind of find, if I could get, remember that soulmate and then live happily ever after, no matter what partner you choose, you will face conflict. In one sense, conflict isn't even bad. It just is. Dan Weil in his book, After the Honeymoon, writes, choosing a partner is choosing a set of problems. You get that? Choosing a partner is choosing a set of problems. He notes that, Problems will be a part of any relationship and that a particular person would have some set of problems no matter who you marry. And then he gives this illustration. Paul married Alice, who tends to get loud at parties. Paul, who is shy, hates that. But if Paul married Susan, then he and Susan would have gotten into a fight even before they got to the party. That's because Paul is always late and Susan hates to be kept waiting. She would have felt taken for granted, which is something she's very sensitive about. Paul would have seen her as complaining and, and about this and his attempt and her attempt to get him to go earlier would have felt dominating and he's very sensitive about that. So if Paul married Gail, let's take another person, they wouldn't have even gone to the party because they would still be upset about the argument they had the day before about Paul not helping with housework. And this lack of help would have made Gail feel abandoned, which she's very sensitive about, and Paul would have interpreted Gail's complaining as an attempt to dominate and control. Now, we could just go on and on, and you could go, and he, he lists, if, if, if uh, Gail had married Steve, and just lists how this shows up around specific desires that will show up in any relationship. It just is the symptom, and the context will be different. And he concludes by saying, there is value when choosing a long-term partner, realizing that you will inevitably be choosing a particular set of potential conflicts that you'll be grappling with for the next 10, 20, or 50 years. Now, that feels almost hopeless, right? It really isn't. The reality is we're wired in certain ways. And as we begin to get to understand what he says here about these competing desires and understand the root of some of those things and then begin to understand how God can actually move in and make some differences in our life, you will still, here's, you will still probably grapple with those competing desires but as two people begin to really discover and understand, as we get into some of these other truths, you will begin to understand how to negotiate and manage through those things in creative and even helpful, fruitful ways. But not everyone does. In fact, you can even stay married and never enter that rest experience of marriage and still negotiate it, how to react to one another rather than be in relationship. So as James writes in chapter 4, verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? They clash, battles begin, conflict arises. You fight either openly or covertly. You become passive, and sometimes when you become passive, you give in, and over time that builds resentment, and the other person goes after you, and on and on. 
The reality is that conflict isn't really bad in one sense, not even necessarily good. It just is. It happens when two people spend any time together. Simple truth number two, conflict stems, this is important, stems from selfish desires. Okay, Conflict stems from selfish desires. Now, when you read this chapter in this book of James and you understand it, he doesn't say selfish. But let me read you a paraphrase, and I like the way that Peterson says this in the message. He says, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because, listen, you want your own way. And you fight for it deep inside yourselves. The original Greek language puts it more closer to what the NIV is. Don't they come from your desires that are at war, battle within you? You desire, but do not have. So you go out and do whatever you can, even to the point, if your desires take hold of you, killing. And we all know what we can do short of that. Being a good student of the Old Testament, James is, is most likely drawing back from a source from his own studies back into the Pentateuch, into the book of Genesis. He goes right back to the beginning. If you trace this word desire, you'll find it showing up in Adam and Eve. And it happens early on in the context of Adam and Eve. In fact, what you find is Adam and Eve are standing and Eve is at this place where she's desiring or is being um, called to desire this this tree that she's to take from and she gives in to the temptation, her desire going against what God had called her to do. Adam also falls into this desire, this selfish desire, which we call sin. And then at a certain point, God starts looking for them. They're hiding and, and God calls them out of their shame. They show up with who they are in their shame. And as they're standing there, God says to them, guess what? I need to share with you something because your desires were in the sense not you weren't obedient with disobedience always comes a curse. And you, you might want to remember that with disobedience always comes a curse. And so he's, he's there standing before them. And in Genesis chapter 3.16, at one point he's laying out these different curses and he's talking to Eve and he says, here's one of the consequences. This is how it will impact both a husband and a wife. This is how it really impact people for generations to come. He says, your desire, catch that, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, contextually, you have to understand this, that throughout history, being a man meant that you had all the power. You can go back and, and, and look at history in all kinds of cultures, and you'll find that being a man had all the power, both in marriage and in life. In fact, you even see that in some ways, if you look at the Muslim world today and some of its most conservative elements, you see this, this, this total control and power that is placed in the male. And I, I, I have served for a number of years for a, a, a relief development organization called Food for the Hungry. And, and one of the most important issues that they f- face in impoverished worlds and throughout the world is the, the state of women. And the incredible abuse and, and the lack of power that they have. Where they have to come in and they have to actually take the word of God and begin to help people understand what God has to say about women. And what's really interesting, people don't realize this. We don't read the Bible in the context of the culture it was given. You see, when, when Moses was given the laws back in, in, in Genesis, Exodus, and throughout those Deuteronomy at that point, he's actually entering a culture where the man had all the power in the marriage. In the marriage, the man actually owned his wife. In a sense, that's property. 
And there was incredible abuses. And so when Moses is given the laws from God, they're not restrictive. We all kind of go, oh man, God's laws just straightjacket us. No, he was bringing freedom and empowering women to be who he created them to be. And Jesus goes on to teach about that. And he actually brings Mary, puts her at his feet, and, and allows for her when Martha says, help, have her help with the housework. He goes, no, she's right where she's supposed to be. And what's about that is that she's actually a disciple like the rest of them. He is doing something incredible. He's elevating her to the, to the place of one who's a disciple. And then Paul goes on and he writes, and people have this all wrong about Paul. Paul's not being restrictive. He's working within the culture to help continue to make this message true, that there is no difference between there's free nor nor enslaved, Jew, nor Greek, male, nor female. He's talking about, in this sense, this role. So you, you read this in the context, and you see what God says to Eve. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And sadly, even with biblical scholars throughout history, this has been taken more as a command of the way things are in God's kingdom. And it isn't. This is not an imperative. It's not as if God is saying this is the way marriage is supposed to be. There's an Old Testament professor, and interestingly enough, this Bible scholar was a woman who began to kind of know, show this because you can just go to the Hebrew and see the Hebrew is not an imperative. It's not a command. It's not a prescription of how things are to be. It's the result of a curse and the disobedience of how things have become outside the kingdom of God. It's a consequence of disordered desires. And what God is actually saying is that because of the fall now, this wonderful plan that he had for marriage was going to be reduced. Now catch this, this is really important. It will be reduced to a power struggle. It was the woeful declaration of the state of marriage because of the fall and sin. And if you note the word rule here, it has the connotation of conquering and subduing. The idea of ruling is not you're the leader of the house and so you get the rule. The idea here was really a negative thing. It was conquering and subduing. One commentator writes, the man's going to subdue his wife. Conquer. Think Neanderthal here. Right? So you're going to subdue the wife, conquer the wife, and the woman is going to desire the man. Now you're thinking, well, desire, that's a good thing. You really want, no, listen to this. Now pay attention to that word desire because James, you can see where James is writing from here. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The word desire used in Genesis 3.16 is the same word if you go in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Look it up sometime. In fact, you don't have to, I'll give it to you. Genesis 4, 7 says sin is crouching at your door. Here what's happening is now the next generation, the sons, Cain and Abel, they're, they're, they're at, at, at war. There's a fight. He's offering worships that are acceptable to God. Cain isn't. And it says that Cain is angry, his desire, because of what his brother is doing and making him look bad. God comes to him and says, guess what, Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. Here's the word. Catch this. It desires to have you. The idea is it desires to control, to manipulate you, and to cause you to do what your heart before God wouldn't want you to do. And the connotation is that sin wants to control you, manipulate you. And what the Lord God is saying, what the Bible seems to explicitly say, is that because humans are now alienated from God, and because you're under the bondage of sin, this marriage relationship that he had made that could be so wonderful is now going to be reduced to a power struggle where the man, because they tend to be stronger physically, will subdue the wife in that sense 
And then because she can't compete physically, she will have this desire to use her brain and her body and whatever she can do to get her way. And so you will seek to subdue and control, and she will seek to desire through manipulation and control. It's the old neck turning the head thing, right? I could give you all kinds of jokes about it, but I'll spare you. Jesus, Jesus is saying to the followers of Jesus, you need to understand, this power struggle that has been set up due to sin is the very reason Jesus came. It's the very reason for the cross. What God did through the cross was to break the selfishness, this, this desire that causes clashes so that you would begin to understand your sin. And through that sin, you begin to start to desire the things God desires so that you can begin to, through the work of the Holy Spirit, restore what was once in the garden. But it doesn't happen immediately. So, yeah, those conflicts, there's going to be power struggles in marriage. But God has come through Jesus Christ. If you begin to recognize this need, you can open your life to him and he'll give you a supernatural power that can change your life. But now you have to learn on a day by day basis what it means to subdue and submit in a sense or to, to control your own desires and begin to bring them to the cross and allow the cross to change your heart. And I have to tell you, it is it is wonderful. Here's the wonderful part. We're called to show up with whatever we are before God. But here's the real difficult part. Now we're called to grow up. And growing up means kind of peeling back your heart and getting really real about you. I, we all love the, you know, blame, blame, blame. And I have to say there's some context where, where things, you know, I don't know why, but one individual entrenches and things don't move forward. But I can tell you when two people, and specifically, like I said last week, and sometimes when one person will get real with these desires in their hearts and really bring them before God and say, God, deal with my self-centeredness. The battle can begin to become something that creatively changes you and makes you more like Jesus. The kingdom life that Jesus ushered in is the life where he begins to bring heaven here on earth. Folks, that's what God is calling us to. To be people transformed by the love of Jesus that begins to even touch our marriages. Keller puts it in his book, being a follower of Jesus is not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. All of this means if you show up, if you really show up in your marriage, and it's really tough if the other person is abusive or, or hurting you. And I have to say again, if there's any physical abuse, even even verbal abuse, you've got to move to a place where you get help. God never calls you to stand to get abused. You need to understand what's going on there. But if you show up, then you need to grow up and understand what are those what I call reactive, protective strategies you've adopted that you've used to meet the deepest needs of your heart. And they are so entwined with who we are that we don't even understand how we use them in relationship with other people and specifically with those whom we love the most. Because those whom we love the most, we want the deepest relational context. We want the deepest relationship because we bring our needs to their needs and those kind of needs can go into war. So simple truth number three, conflict is shaped by protective patterns. And we learn early on. We learn through our hurt or through our fears. The reality is that God birthed all of us uniquely with certain ways that we're wired that, that show up. But then as we go through life, as 
little kids. And I have to show, this is not about blaming parents. I, that is something that I am just totally against. You know what? Your parents did the best they can. And in some cases, there's parents who are truly abusive, and you've got to be recognized and aware of that. But you have to understand, this is about coming to a place where you understand, how do I get what I need and react? What are the patterns I use? How do I go about getting what I want? And how does it show up then in my marriage? I've been contemplating for some time to write a book called um, um, Living in Relationship uh, Versus Reactionship. Because I believe a lot of times what happens is people come to faith in Christ. They begin, they're made new in Christ, but you have to begin to activate these loving responses that are given to you by the Holy Spirit. And part of that comes by beginning to really unpeel and understand who you are and what causes you to be wired the way you are. It calls for self-awareness so that you can begin to come into this relationship or any relationship where you can begin to relate in a way rather than react. I know in my life, I'll just tell you, I've, I've, I've in many cases reacted way too long. And it just kills relationship. Jesus came, died so that you could be put into relationship with God. And what happens is you begin to start to relate to God, you begin to know Him, and you begin to really get honest with that. It gets you into a place where you can be vulnerable and humble, where you can see who you are, as you can show up with your guilt and your shame and all the stuff that's ugly, and you get honest about it. It allows you then to move into a place where you can show up with other people, and you can begin to love even when you don't get anything back in return. I, I can tell you, I know that from my wife, I know it from my own sake. There are times where you just are in a place where you go, I, I'm getting nothing back here. But you're getting filled because of the love that comes from God. It's interesting in this, uh, there's a book that um, I shared with you before that I, I think is probably one of, I, I would say probably, I've read a lot of books. But this is probably one of the best I've read on these patterns that show up in people's lives, these styles. They call them love styles. And it's, it's, it's called How We Love by Milan and Kay Yurkovich. And I was sharing that with someone. They asked me the name of the authors and I said, well, Yurkovich. And and, you know, that's not when you hear that name, it's probably you go, oh, I heard that before. It's not like Johnson. And, oh, I don't, but the person said to me, oh, that's interesting. I just got this magazine called Thriving Family. They get it from Dodson and, and, and they're on one of their lead articles, how the past shapes your marriage. And they talk about these different love styles that really get in the way. They're patterns that are developed as you grow up. They're patterns of one who is a, a voids or someone who is what a pleaser or a person who is a vacillator, which is they've had connections from time to time and they, they go after it because they love the intensity of the connection. And I could go through it. There's a controller and a victim. And they have five different patterns, but they kind of interweave together. And I'm not going to go into that. Except for I thought at this point in the, the message, I would just ask someone, um, a couple who would come and just share a little bit of what God has been teaching them and what they've learned in their relationship. And, and I think stories are really helpful. They help people understand. So I'm going to ask Davy and Sally, um, who courageously um, are willing just to share a little bit about how God's been at work in their life. For many of the 29 years of our marriage, I devoted all my time and energy to career and work and did not choose to uh, develop an intimate relationship with Sally or, for that matter, other people. And at the same time, um, my energy and focus was on our three kids and our busy household. And um, but However, our life was shifting because our oldest was already in college, our second was starting college, and that meant our second was, um, our third one was going to be soon off to college. And then Davy decided to leave the workforce. And that meant that he'd be home um, after 
much of our life he was traveling and we'd meet each other on the weekends and it would be filled with um, kids activities and so we really didn't have much of a relationship and I was hit with the fact that I was going to see him seven days a week. (laughs) Thanks to Sally's desire to have more out of our relationship, we did go see a couple of counselors to help us. We had some success, but it always seemed like we got fell back into our old patterns and we got stuck, and that was not a comfortable place to be. And at this time, we had a couple of friends um, who invited us to a marriage-intensive weekend, And we came up with every excuse that we could because we didn't want to go. Um, But our friends persevered. And uh, prior to this marriage intensive, we had to fill out paperwork about our childhood experiences and our families of origin. And then we submitted them to this counselor. And so we um, started off this uh, marriage intensive weekend and we met this counselor and she looked at Davy and she said, "Um, Davy, when conflict arises, you're going to go behind a wall to avoid it at all costs. And Sally, with your um, experience with abandonment and rejection in early childhood, um, you're going to go after him because you don't like that feeling of abandonment. And I did. I went after him (laughs) because I didn't want to feel like I was abandoned again. And that was our dance. (laughs) So out of this was like a huge light bulb went off that to have an understanding of what we were doing was not being in relationship, but we were triggering reactive behaviors in each other. So then we had the pleasure of the uh, next three days of learning new tools and practicing those new tools of how to be in relationship when we got into a conflict and not react to each other. In the uncomfortable thing, but the positive thing is we were using real life issues in our marriage in that practicing. So it was hard, hard work. But we were learning a new dance step. So now we have a choice to make in our relationship, whether or not we want to be in a relationship or we want to go back to our old reactive behaviors, which for us was uh, control and manipulation. So we don't always make these healthy choices of being in a relationship, but the good thing is, is that we now recognize early on that we're reacting and we can come out of it and get back into relationship. Uh, the other positive is because we did go to this with two other couples, we are now meeting regularly with those couples to hold each other accountable in our marriages and are we making progress? Are we working on our marriages? Um, it seems like this all happened in a couple of weeks, but it didn't. This is like a six-year process. And during all this process, this is the amazing thing that God does is that um, he brings other peoples into our life. And I had a friend who I was praying with at Moms in Touch at our kids' school. And she came back in the fall and she said, or I looked at her and I said, Cammie, you are a different person. And I could tell by the way she prayed. She had a deeper relationship with God. And I said, I want what you have. And um, so I went through a, a prayer ministry very similar to the gateway ministry that um, we started here at Wyzetta Free. And I was able to receive um, healing from um, emotional and spiritual wounds. I was able to forgive people that I didn't even know that I hadn't forgiven them. So I was released from all that. And through that time, that healing of the prayer ministry um, that I did, and it took David a few months later to actually um, go again. But between that, when we could understand one another through the counseling tools that we'd received and then the, the restoration that we had received in the prayer ministry, um, we just gained a better understanding of one another, a greater compassion for one another. 
and it really helped esteem our, our relationship. And so now it has become a priority to us is that um, our relationship comes first. And um, we uh, don't want to go back to those unhealthy patterns where we um, didn't really have a relationship. So we are very thankful for what God has done in our lives, for the people and the resources that he's brought around us to help us in our relationship, and also for the uh, new hope that we have in our relationship. And I just want to reconfirm what Sally said. This is not something that's happened overnight. We're on a journey, and this has been going on for six years, and uh, the journey will continue. And as Kevin said last week, it takes and it will take commitment to hard work, commitment to personal growth, and commitment to involving others. Thanks, you guys. You know, I, I really hope this is a place where we get real. And it does no good to hide. And it means everything to say, here's who I am, God, and here's who I am to some people who you can trust and develop relationship with. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I'm going to just share with you two truths. And I said I'd run through them, but simple truth number four, kind of what they touched on, conflict is managed. I use that rather than resolve because... You don't ever get out of conflicts. There's conflicts all through. You manage it through compassionate dialogue. And that's a whole message in itself. And then the fifth one is the one that I want to just leave us with. Simple truth number five. Conflict is fruitful through spiritual initiative. You know, we talk a lot about what does it mean to be a leader. You know, I see men, what, you'd be a leader in your home. You know what being a leader in your home is, is spiritual initiative. It's the first one to bend your knee. I look at it that way. It's the first one to bend your knee in your heart before God. James 4, 2, verse 2 and 3 says this. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on what you to get your own pleasures. And I have to tell you, this is so critical. We read that verse as kind of like, oh, God, you know, I just want, I really want a better marriage. You know what? It's so much deeper than that. It's a sense of brokenness and desperateness where you come before God and say, God, I want to be the person you want me to be. And the motives are not to try and get so you can just get through life and things are kind of it, it will transform your life when you come to this place and say, God, I will follow you. I've come with my whole self. I submit myself. I will do whatever you call me to do in obedience so that I can experience your blessing. And it's a step by step process. I'm going to ask you to stand because we're going to sing this song in just a moment. Just listen for a bit in a prayerful way, if you would. Mm-hmm.